My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode six of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Last time, we talked about the Antonine Plague, probably the worst disease epidemic the world had ever seen up until that point. It ripped through the empire as Rome was trying to finish up its eastern war with the Parthians, leaving gutted cities, an understaffed army, and economic ruin in its wake. No one knew it at the time, but it marked the end of the Pax Romana that had given so many generations peace and relative prosperity. The weakened empire had become easy pickings, or at least easier pickings, for anyone who might want to take advantage of the situation. Today, we'll see how that plays out. Episode 6, Barbarians of the Frozen North While the Parthian War still raged in the east, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius was contending with another conflict on his northern border. From 162 until 165 AD, a group of German tribes continuously raided across the Rhine into Gaul, a territory that today includes the countries of France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. In other places, they pushed south across the Danube into Roman provinces that today are covered by the countries of Hungary, Austria, and Croatia. With few gaps, the borders that demarcated where Roman civilization ended and the land of the barbarians began ran along the Rhine and Danube rivers, which offered a natural impediment to raiding. The Romans built fortifications and stationed troops to guard the border, but the rivers were known to freeze over and turn into highways during winter. With so many northern troops off fighting in the east, the legions struggled to hold back the Germans, who tried to cross over, and their raids were doing considerable damage. This was the first trickle of what would eventually become known as the Marcomannic Wars. A coalition of German tribes under the leadership of the Marcomannic king Balamar, theoretically a Roman client king, actively attempted to break through the Roman defenses to plunder imperial territory and even gain land to settle on permanently. They also tried to use the threat of their military might as a way of bullying Marcus into granting them rights reserved for Roman citizens without actually giving up their autonomy and becoming subjects. The Germans also managed to draw several tribes of Sarmatians, semi-nomadic horse warriors who lived on the Hungarian plain, into their alliance. Old history books say that they did this because they were under pressure from an expansionist Gothic state further north, but this view is considered an unlikely primary driver today by most historians. Why the Germans became so aggressive after a long period of fairly good relations with the Romans is still debated, but it's likely that they knew Rome's border was undermanned due to the Parthian War, and later that the plague had left the empire weakened and ripe for attack. Trying to regain the initiative, Marcus appointed a promising senator named Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus to oversee the defenses in Pannonia Inferior on the empire's northern frontier along the Danube. Pompeianus had already distinguished himself as a legionary commander in the Parthian War, and after being reassigned to Europe, he rallied the local Roman garrisons to defeat a 6,000-man Lombard invasion when it poured across the border that summer. But while the Romans were tied down in Pannonia, other elements of the Confederacy, including the very mobile 
Sarmatians, invaded Dacia, a large wedge of imperial territory encompassing modern Romania, which, lacking the defensive advantage of the Danube, was open to attack on three sides. Other small armies penetrated other northern provinces, causing several significant Roman defeats. But the Germans were just getting started. In the lack of firm resistance they encountered on their looting, raping, and pillaging expeditions beyond the fortified border only encouraged them. All of it couldn't have come at a worse time. The raids ramped up around 166 AD, while many of the legions the emperor had dispatched to the east were still marching back to Europe, and severely depleted by plague and war. You can imagine Marcus's frustration. After successfully ending one major war, here was another military crisis dropped in his lap, just as a plague epidemic was tearing open the very fabric of society. It must have seemed like the empire was falling apart at the seams. Given his philosophic temperament, we can imagine Marcus in Rome. Outside his palace, the workers he's paid to give the thousands of impoverished plague victims a proper funeral carried cartloads of bodies through the streets. His desk is piled high with scrolls from his commanders on the northern border, calling for reinforcements and instructions. He takes a breath. And then he calls to mind the words of one of his favorite Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, whose words he was fond of quoting in his own journal, Meditations. Quote, In life, our first job is this, to divide and distinguish into two categories— Externals I cannot control, but the choices I make with regards to them I do control. Where will I find good and bad? In me, in my choices. Marcus couldn't control the plague. Not even the royal physician Galen had come up with any effective countermeasures. He couldn't do much about the resulting famine that was causing his people to go hungry. He also couldn't stop the Germans from deciding to raid his people's homes. But if they decided to raid, he could control how he responded, and that's where he would put his efforts and his thoughts, not wasting them on wishes and regrets. Marcus had never led an army in his life, and had actually never left Italy. He preferred to deliberate thoroughly and then rule by decree, allowing competent men to carry out his will. But with this new crisis, with his empire falling apart, delegating didn't seem to be an option. Maybe, against his own inclinations, Marcus was channeling a bit of Hadrian and decided that he had to personally intervene if he was going to get the job done. In his notebook, Marcus wrote, quote, Stop wasting energy in fear and procrastination. Your job is to see what needs to be done and then do it. If you see the way forward, proceed without looking back. If you are unsure which way to go, stop and find a trustworthy guide. If something blocks your way, make that obstacle a stepping stone on your journey. If you fail or die, it will be in pursuit of a worthy goal. There is no shame in that." Unquote. What's more, he had learned from his earlier mistake. At the start of the Parthian War, he dispatched his subordinate co-emperor, Lucius Verus, in the hopes that he'd at least act as a good figurehead and an inspiration, if not actually contributing to the campaign. Although that conflict 
had been won thanks to the competent generals Marcus had assigned. Reports had come back to him of Varus's debauchery. Lucius Varus had only rarely managed to stir himself from the resort towns and flesh pots around Antioch to ride around reviewing troops' formations and certainly wasn't contributing any brain power to the operation. If Marcus was going to take the fight to the Germans, he wasn't about to let Lucius stay behind and drink and party in Rome, and he informed his co-emperor that he'd be accompanying him to Germania. With barbarians raiding ever deeper into imperial territory, Marcus planned to raise an army and cross over the Danube to take the fight to the Germans in 166 AD. But his initial plans had to be scrapped. His available forces were so decimated by plague, and the empire's economy was in such a ruined state that he couldn't gather enough men to make it work. Galen, Marcus's personal physician, writes that food was scarce through much of the empire because famine and plague tends to go hand in hand, so it's also possible that it would have been hard to provide enough grain to feed a large army in the field. In the spring of 167, as Marcus was rounding up all the able-bodied men he could find, a huge German army led by Balamar crossed the Danube and bypassed the fortresses on the other side. The army steamrolled whatever Roman opposition the frontier commanders could manage and devastated the Roman provinces of Noricum, Mosia, and Pannonia before crossing over the Alps and into Italy itself. They raped, looted, and burned the countryside before ending up at Aquileia, a rich, fortified Roman city on the northeast side of Italy. The Germans besieged it, but lacking any siege engines or knowledge of sapping, they couldn't get inside. Marcus gave command of Rome's counterattack to Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus, who drove the Germans back across the Alps, though without achieving a decisive victory. For Marcus, it was the Pearl Harbor of his reign. Italy had not been so severely threatened since Gaius Marius had beaten off a German invasion some 250 years earlier. Julius Caesar and those that had followed him had conquered more and more northern territory, in part to buffer Italy from just such an attack, but that buffer was proving all too thin. It became clear to everyone that the Germans were going to have to be shown that Rome would not take their abuse lying down. The question was how to do it. The economy was in ruins, the state coffers empty. Marcus began selling off the imperial riches to finance his campaign. 150 years of royal treasures went on the auction block. It was not only the gold goblets and silver flagons and chandeliers and fine crystal of the imperial apartments that was auctioned off, but Marcus's wife's gold-embroidered robes and jewels. This may have been part theater to let the people know how grave the situation was, but it probably also spoke to a real desperation. Marcus found it impossible to recruit enough men from among the free citizens who normally staffed the army, so he began to free slaves and gladiators and drafted members of Rome's police and fire brigades. Marcus also summoned the best military minds the empire had left, and in this we see signs of just how much the plague and prior conflict had reduced the ranks of Rome's senatorial elite, with dozens of equites the lower level of nobility, newly promoted from obscurity into Marcus's command staff. Avidius Cassius, the senator who led the Roman march into Parthia that ended the war, was left in the east to deal with a peasant rebellion in Egypt. 
There were several accomplished senators from prestigious families among Marcus's advisors, but there are also men like Pompeianus and his associate, Publius Helvius Pertinax, who was the son of a freed slave who Marcus continually promoted due to his outstanding abilities as a governor and as a general. With his new army forming up under his personal command, Marcus sallied forth from Italy in 169 AD. Lucius Verus suggested that they, or at least he, should be left in Aquileia, but Marcus insisted that his co-emperor stay with the army. The Romans initially made a show of strength and crossed over the Danube, but this was probably little more than a demonstration of Marcus's determination while his army was still forming and training. He retreated to winter quarters further south in Roman territory without a major battle. During this return march, his co-emperor, Lucius Verus, fell ill and died, probably killed by the plague that was devastating so many of his subjects. Although the Roman elite had better nutrition than their plebeian subjects and the best medical care available, no amount of riches could protect them from the Antonine Plague. Marcus returned to Rome and gave Verus a lavish, steep funeral. Although Lucius never grew into the man Marcus hoped he'd become, he seemed to have been fond of his brother by adoption. Interestingly, Marcus quickly married his daughter Lucilla, who was Verus's widow, to the rising star Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus. Pompeianus had been promoted to the Senate but was considered of low birth compared to the blue-blooded patricians who would normally expect to marry an emperor's daughter. But Pompeianus was increasingly proving himself to be an apt commander and a good advisor to Marcus, with a steady, straightforward character that was much like the emperor's own. Marcus apparently wanted to tie him to his dynasty, and his daughter was married off. Marcus's wife and Lucilla herself complained over the match. Not only was Pompeianus from an undistinguished provincial family, but he was nearly twice Lucilla's age. The objection did no good, and the two were married. The nobility grumbled at how many men of low birth were being given high positions under Marcus, but it didn't dissuade the emperor from promoting men based on merit. Marcus, now the sole emperor spent the winter of 169 AD in the frigid border province of Pannonia, skillfully using diplomacy to detach some of the dozens of unreliable German tribes from the main alliance, promising them clemency and privileges in return for abandoning their compatriots. The strategy bore fruit, and a number of tribes ended up sitting out the rest of the war. It's during this time that historians believe Marcus took a break from his busy schedule to scribble in his notebook before bed, working on his faults, such as his temper, and trying to rein in his disgust with members of his court, who he viewed as only being interested in personal gain while the whole country was struggling. He also gave himself regular pep talks, trying to convince himself to keep going, even though his body was beginning to fail him. Marcus was only 48, not that old by our standards, but time had not treated him well. In his youth, historians tell us that he was healthy enough to enjoy riding and wrestling, but an unknown disease had been eating away at him for decades, making it hard for him to eat. He suffered from stomach and chest pains and had trouble sleeping. The flesh had melted off his frame as he aged, and he now looked gaunt. 
The cold climate wasn't helping his fragile health, but he refused to abandon the campaign and return to the warmer weather of Italy. He was going to see that the German threat was dealt with. Ultimately, the force that Marcus gathered around him was huge, amounting to at least 100,000 men, with some estimates going up to 140,000 when non-citizen auxiliary troops are included. He also built up a large Danubian fleet to more easily move his troops and supplies and to better surround his enemy. The Marcomanni and their allied German tribes likely could not have fielded more than 70,000 men, plus several tens of thousands more of Sarmatian horsemen of the steppe. The Germans were physically larger than their southern neighbors, and the Romans had a great deal of respect for their bravery and battle prowess. During the first clashes between Rome and the Germans several hundred years prior, the tribes had only overcome Rome's material, logistic, and training advantages when they massively outnumbered them, had them surrounded or on unfavorable terrain, ambushed them, or when the Romans were being led by an incompetent commander. Any one German was easily a match for any Roman, but the Germans weren't fond of fighting in disciplined ranks and going through endless drill, which gave the Romans an advantage in the field. What could a horde of brave men do against a phalanx of heavily armored, stabbing legionnaires, all moving in concert like some sort of unnatural automaton? But several centuries as Rome's neighbor had changed things, and they now often had better quality arms and armor, better tactical skill, and a hardened core of soldiers who trained regularly for combat. Marcus had the unenviable task of warring with the Germans at the very peak of their fighting prowess. But the biggest problem was trying to figure out how to beat them on a larger scale. Traditionally, the Romans could beat whatever armies the enemy might field and then move on to sack and capture their cities, gaining a good deal of wealth in the process. Additionally, a captured city produced a lot of ongoing wealth that could then be taxed, which was a great way to permanently incorporate a territory into the empire since it could pay for itself. But the Germans, although they had become ever more prosperous through trade with their settled neighbors and they had adopted ever more tactical skill and innovation from the Romans, they'd completely avoided building larger cities. They were spread out in small villages and towns over thousands of square miles and their people remained stubbornly mobile. It's hard to conquer a people who will get up and leave their homes when they want to avoid being conquered. And there would be little tax revenue to collect from the barren land these exoduses left behind, making incorporating new German territories into the empire even harder. It's unclear how involved Marcus was in the initial invasion of Marcomannic territory, but it was a disaster. Some 20,000 probably not very experienced legionnaires were cut down by the Germans. Further to the east, thousands of Sarmatian horsemen crossed the Carpathians into Thrace and began a 650-mile rampage through the Balkans and Greece, making it all the way to, Ath to Athens before the Romans were finally able to push them back. A faction of Marcus's advisors, as well as a significant part of the Senate, pressured him to sue for peace after these major defeats, even if it meant paying tribute to the Germans and Sarmatians to keep them at bay. 
but Marcus was determined to continue and believed that eventually superior Roman logistics and organization would win out and that any peace won through bribery would not last. By 171, playing the long game was beginning to bear fruit. Marcus systematically peeled off more German tribes and sowed dissension within their ranks by supporting usurpers and personal rivalries among the German leadership. Several smaller Roman military campaigns beat some of the smaller German tribes while they were separated, further weakening the alliance. At the end of the year, Marcus personally led his troops in attacking the Marcomanni as they crossed back over the Danube from a raid on Roman territory. He utterly crushed them, and thousands of Germans were left dead on the river. The Marcomanni's fighting strength had been so heavily damaged that they wouldn't be able to attack Roman territory for the rest of the war. In 172, Marcus crossed into the Marcomannic heartland directly, again decisively beating the Germans in battle. With no major cities to capture, the Romans began a scorched-earth campaign, burning crops and villages and leaving them nowhere to hide. Soon, the Marcomanni agreed, agreed to peace, and they returned all their captured Roman prisoners and gave hostages to ensure good behavior. Next, Marcus began moving against the Sarmatians, who lived on the Hungarian plain. In 173, a Roman force intercepted and routed a large Sarmatian army moving to attack Roman Dacia, and later that year, Marcus repeated his earlier river ambush strategy, again personally taking command and smashing a combined Sarmatian-German army that was trying to cross the frozen Danube after an attack on Roman territory. Loaded down with plunder and impeded by the slippery ice, the tribesmen stood no chance against the legionnaires, who developed a special strategy of using their shields to steady the man in front of them against oncoming cavalry charges. Marcus may not have started off as a warrior, but it appears that he learned quickly. The emperor was viewed by the common people of Rome as a good man, but one with his head in the clouds, a philosopher with little in common with them, and one who seemed uninterested in many Roman passions, such as gladiatorial matches and chariot races. But the stuffy philosopher ended up gaining the steadfast support of the army by bringing them victory. For the rest of his reign, Marcus had the unswerving support of his soldiers. Stories of Marcus's military exploits often probably exaggerated, circled among the legionnaires and got back to his civilian subjects. Many of these stories are still visible, carved into the column of Marcus Aurelius in Rome. You can see Marcus praying for victory during a battle against the Sarmatians in 174 AD. A thunderbolt careens out of the sky, striking an enemy catapult as if he'd managed to recruit Jupiter himself to the army's cause. A few weeks later, while a group of his legionnaires were trapped without water and surrounded by Germans, the column seems to show him summoning a sudden torrential rain, which the soldiers used to fill helmets and shields to quench their thirst. These were coincidental shifts in weather, but it seemed to the Romans that their philosopher-emperor had the ear of the gods. 
Marcus had reason to take pride in the success of his strategy, in the perseverance he'd shown in the face of setbacks, but it's likely around this time that he penned a passage in his notebook, quote, Spiders are proud of catching flies, men of catching hares, fish in a net, boars, bears, sarmatians, criminal psychology, unquote. This line likely speaks to his unease with the necessity of war and his belief that one should not take pride in the massacre of even an enemy who had wronged you. It may also refer to his unease with slavery, a bedrock foundation of Roman society. With the defeat of the Sarmatian armies, Roman soldiers captured many horsemen and whatever women and children that may have been with them. They sold these captives into slavery for a hefty profit. Several Stoic philosophers considered slavery an evil, and we'll spend more time talking about Marcus's choices surrounding the subject later on. Later in 174, Marcus led an army onto the Hungarian plain, while another force moved into Germania to deal with the few remaining German tribes. Both armies crushed their foes decisively. The emperor was busy mopping up the last resistance the following year, when bad news arrived. One of his closest allies had betrayed him. There would be more hardship for his people. This time, a civil war. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll be talking about a rebellion from one of the few men with the clout to challenge Marcus's claim to the throne. A heroic commander who had the loyalty of the Eastern Legions and the experience and skill needed to win on the battlefield. Are you enjoying The Turning Wheel? If so, can you do me two favors? First, please give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use and write a few words about why you like it. This really helps more people find the show, which will help it succeed in the long run. Second, please consider supporting the podcast financially. Donating a few bucks will get you the exclusive bonus episode from this series, Episode 9, which covers Marcus's interesting interactions with the plebs, his lower-class subjects. We also talk about his legal reforms and his approach to slavery, one of the bedrock foundations of the empire. You can also submit questions for the Q&A episode, and you'll receive an ebook containing the entire story of Marcus's life, as conveyed in this podcast in one sweet co- collection. Please go to patreon.com slash the turning wheel to make a donation. Thanks for listening and see you next time.